This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Good day. Welcome to Arguing History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is uh, Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historic Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today I am pleased and honored to have with us Professor Jerry Black. Professor Black is Professor of History Emeritus at Exeter University. He is also a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute in Philadelphia. He is, no doubt, in the words of Reed Browning, quote, the most prolific historical scholar of our age, unquote, having written well over 100 books. And today we are speaking about the topic, The Great War, Why the Allies Won. Welcome, Professor Black. Hello. Professor Black, uh, in as many words as you like, tell us why you believe that the ally, why the Allies won the Great War, and I suppose, uh, conversely, why the Germans and their allies failed to do so. Well, thank you very much. I don't think there's anything inevitable because, in essence, although the resources that the Allies had, both trading uh, with America and the wider world before American entry into the war in 1917 and subsequently was greater than those enjoyed by the Central Powers, nevertheless, um, it's not only that military fortunes are uncertain, but the more significant point from, from my perspective is that political fortunes are uh, uncertain. And just as one saw uh, Russia uh, collapse uh, politically and then militarily in 1917-18, so it is not inconceivable that the same thing could have happened uh, elsewhere and to other competents. It could have happened to Italy in late 1917. It's potential potentially even possible as late as the spring of 1918 in the case of France. So that I would be wary of any sense of inevitability. But if one's looking at likely factors for uh, allied victory, I think, first of all, that it's key that in both 1914 and in 1916, when the Germans launched major offensives on the West, and in 1915, when it launched major offensive against Russia, in neither case were, in those cases, sorry, were they able to knock out their opponents. I think that's very, very important, because what that meant is that Germany, and once Italy came into the war, also Austria, were fighting two front wars, and that, I think, was very punishing uh, on the analogy, one always has to be cautious of analogies, but on the analogy of World War II, one thinks about how the Third Reich then found its options affected uh, from 1941 after um, the Soviet, after it began its attack on the Soviet Union and moved to what in effect was a two-front war. So I think a two-front war was extraordinarily difficult to to wage, 
And obviously there is the separate issue of, as it were, the attritional resource base, um, which I think is a problem for everybody, uh, but which the Allies proved better able to master, not least because they, in geopolitical terms, control the space of the Atlantic and the world oceans. Well, uh, I think I have like four questions just from that answer. Uh, very cogent and um, uh, informative answer. I suppose the first one is: uh, Would it be would it be correct to say that, um, insofar as the Germans failed to win a short uh, blitzkrieg war in uh, the fall of uh, 1914, that the Allies were bound to win? I suppose your answer to that would be not really, or somewhat yes, somewhat no. Is that correct? Yes, and I would say the not really, because a number of things could have could have came, come to the fore. I mean, an obvious one, which we tend to underplay, is that there were uh, tentative peace feelers, including the papacy playing a very major role here. It didn't like to see Catholic countries, France, Italy, Austria, fighting each other. The Austrians, of course, were inclined to to peace. Um, there were uh, French ministers who were interested in peace. Of course, Marcus of Lansdowne famously advocated uh, negotiations in Britain. Um, so that that's something that's worth considering. And of course, in a way, the war on the Eastern Front did end with a, a peace, the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. So in a sense, peace was not an impossibility. So the actual result, which by the end of 1918 was... Uh, the overthrow of the uh, Hohenzollern and Habsburg uh, dynasties uh, was not one that I would say was inevitable, even if one uh, notes the, the the consequences of both of their both of those states' failures of their war plans in in 1914. But um, just briefly uh, to take up your point, I think you're absolutely right, as you were implying both then and at the outset that there are, as it were, separate questions as to why the Allies won and why the Central Powers did not win. And although those those questions are related, too often is it, is it the case that people elide the differences in emphasis between them. But um, your this answer just provided me with a whole bunch of other questions. I'll, I'll delve into that now. Um, was there, in fact, ever a real possibility of a peace uh, status quo antebellum, meaning peace as of, um, I suppose, June, I'm sorry, July 27th, 1914, uh, from David Stevenson's book on international politics and the Great War? Uh, it seems that none of the uh, Entente or Allied um, leaders were interested in a, a peace along those lines. At the very least, the French were looking for, um, if all, if part, if not of all, of return of Alsace-Lorraine, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so do you think that was actually even plausible, a status quo antebellum peace? Well, I don't think it was plausible in light of, in particular, uh, German views. The power that was closest to it was uh, Emperor Karl of Austria. And, you know, when he made his secret peace 
approach to France via his brother-in-law, the Prince of Bourbon, uh, Palmer. He proposed a peace based not only on the restoration of Belgium and Serbia, but also on the return of Alsace-Lorraine to France. Of course, the problem with that is that Austria was in no position uh, to, to deliver that. And, you know, the furious Wilhelm II forced uh, Karl to uh, to uh, accept that this was not, you know, this, this, this could, couldn't be taken further. I mean, I, I, you know, I think you're right that the government's of Germany, the government of Germany in particular uh, was not keen on it, and its military wasn't keen on it. I mean, as you know, uh, the Reichstag passed a peace resolution in July 1917, but that had no real traction for the government. So, in a way, what one has to assume is a change of government in Germany, but a Germany that's still going on fighting whilst or uh, whilst it prepares an armistice on that basis. Now. That, in a sense, um, was the formulation, again, looking at another war in a different context, that was the formulation, in essence, of the bomb plotters against Hitler in the um, summer of 1944. Um, And you and I would probably both agree that that was not credible. Uh, But on the other hand, it's it's a brave person that says something is impossible. (laughs) <laughs> and, and I mean, what we do know is that the German army uh, lost confidence in the war in late 1918, despite the fact that the, you know, it did not really, but certainly its back wasn't to the wall. It hadn't been forced back anywhere near the Rhine, let alone, let alone beyond it. Um, and we know that also the Kaiser went. So what we're essentially saying is that in late 1918, a situation that was only partial defeat by the criteria of 1944 leads to a total change of policy, whereas what we're arguing is that that was inconceivable beforehand. So all I'm simply saying is I agree with you entirely, Charles. It's highly unlikely, but I wouldn't go as far as to say it was inconceivable. So in essence, um, uh, you're adhering to what you said in your wonderful book, uh, Military Strategy, uh, which just came out this year, Yale University Press, where you say that Germany's gains in 1914 by way of territory in France and Belgium prevented Germany um, from making a plausible compromise peace. In essence, yes, it eliminated the motivation. Yes, and also, as, as you're implying, it also therefore fatally circumscribed its strategy. Uh, because if you would argue that the basis, or a basis of strategy for any uh, governing group is to maintain itself in power, then the one thing that they did not do um, was, was succeed in that. Um, so in a way, the operational success of German war making in uh, 1914, and indeed, I would again say by analogy in World War II, uh, it, it is part of a strategic failure. Now, I think the political context is different in each case, um, but I think that the point is still germane. Um, and I mean, I'm very interested in this because as you know, and I, I don't think one can get it right. I think what one can and only do is make suggestions. Um, I am very interested in the hypothetical because, you know, the counterfactual, if you like, and as you know, I've written a book about that and we've discussed it. 
because the counterfactual reopens the position that contemporaries were at. I mean, during World War One, even more than World War Two, or let's just rephrase that, far more than in World War Two, there is maximum uncertainty as to what is going to happen. And if our basic model, which is the one that tends to be used for want of anything other, you know, as it were, uh, the uh, Axis powers doing well in World War um, to until late 42 or the summer of 42 in the case of Midway and then uh, the Allies uh, as it were rising up and that sort of provides the two halves to the war that you really does not work as a model in World War One, and I think what that does is underline the uncertainty of World War One. Um, and you know the second underlining of that uncertainty is that the major power that, as it were, succumbs to revolution, if you want to use that word, I mean, you might well say in World War II is Italy in 1943. Um, the Russia in 1917 is a much bigger player and therefore much more significant. Um, and, you know, I can't see that that was inevitable. I mean, we all know afterwards that one can always write about how the strains of the war caused immense problems. But, I mean, it must have struck, well, we know it struck contemporaries. Russia had already uh, done badly in the 1904-05 uh, war with Japan. It had faced revolution and it had survived that revolution. In World War I, um, helped by the fact that its opponents' energies were also otherwise engaged by the British, the French, and the Italians, um, the Russians had held off the German attacks in 1915 and, uh, and 1916, and with the Brusilov offensive in 1916, had actually inflicted quite serious problems on the Austrians. So I'm not sure that, uh, that the Russian Revolution appeared at all predictable. And once you're starting to think in those terms, it must have been very difficult. Well, we know it was very difficult in 1918 to have the faintest idea of what was going to happen. I mean, the British had secret plans in 1918 at the time of the German spring offensives that if everything went pear-shaped, um, you know, in other words, the other side, the Germans breaking through uh, and doing, exploiting it much more successfully, the British were going to fall back and sort of, as it were, demolish each of the ports um, as they did so, so that which would, you know, weaken possibility of any uh, German invasion. Now that was a, you know, a very, in, very different scenario to what in fact occurred by the end of that war. And I would suggest that the German Spring Offensive of 1918 is much more serious than the Battle of the Bulge, the uh, German Winter Offensive of December 1944. Uh, that would be my, you know, but obviously other people can, you know, can debate that. But I, the point I would be making is that there are there are room, there is room to debate these points. Well, let's get to the uh, Spring Offensive of 1918 in in a while. What I, what I wanted to ask you was, uh, do you believe that uh, Falkenheim uh, Moltke, the younger's um, successor as uh, chief of the of the general German general uh, staff um, in uh, October, September, October 1914. Do you think he sold the pass by not completely going on the defensive on the Western Front and making a major push to knock Russia out of the war beginning in the fall of 1914? Um, which, which was, in fact, 
the strategy um, or the plans that were um, adhered to by Moltke the Elder um, in the 1870s, 1880s. Um, if there was a two-front war, his plan was to stay on the defensive on the Western Front and make a major offensive uh, to knock Russia out of any uh, such conflict, to a two-front conflict uh, in the Eastern Front. Uh, yes, I mean, I think there's a lot of uh, truth about that. I mean, Falkenhayn did focus in 1915 on the Eastern Front, and of course, I mean, they didn't knock out um, uh, Russia, although, ironically, the 1914 plan to knock out Serbia was accomplished in 1915, in large part because of the addition of Bulgaria coming into the war. Um, I mean, there were obviously unexpected problems in 1915 for the Germans. One can think in particular of the um, of the defection of the uh, I- Italians. Um, uh, but, you know, the 1915 German campaign in Poland didn't, was, you know, it was not a failure. I mean, the, the, the Germans captured, you know, Brestitos, Grodno, Vilnius, Kurland. Uh, the problem was that um, all, you know, the, the breakthroughs that they did achieve did not produce strategic results, uh, either in terms of the collapse of the Russian army or politically. Um, and, you know, the Russians lost many troops in, in 1915, but they ended up with, in a, in a sense, a shorter uh, front line. Um, so, the, you know, there were substantial losses inflicted on Russia, uh, but the German army did not have the benefit of mechanization. Um, and... Um, you know, the Russians were able to go on fighting, as indeed, of course, happened in 1941, albeit further east. Um, now, I mean, the, you know, Falkenhayn, I mean, he attacks at Ypres in April 1915, and I would agree with you that that, that served singularly little point. Um, but he, other than that, on the Western Front in 1915, uh, the Germans really don't launch the offensive. I mean, it's the Allies launch the offensives, and the British, for example, at loose. Uh, and uh, as you know, neither side successfully so. And then in 1916, having failed to out Russia, uh, Falkenhayn essentially returns to a very different version of 1914. In other words, the focus is going to be on knocking out France, um, but not for not through a manoeuvrist uh, operation in which one searches for the exposed flank. Um, and we can debate the you know, the rights and wrongs on that. And I think, you know, I would say there's good work on the done and there's good work on uh, uh, Falkenhayn. I mean, Robert Foley's book, I think, is, is particularly uh, impressive. Um, I mean, Falkenhayn clearly is no fool, um, but I think that the, the inability of the Germans on the Western Front in 1914 and on the Eastern Front in 1915 to translate breakthrough achievements into forcing their opponent or persuading their opponent um, to change policy. That, I think, is a real problem. So what one's got is the classic issue with strategy, which is they have, as it were, worked out how to achieve military operational success to a certain extent. Very difficult to sustain it, but, you know, considerable success. A lot of territory taken, 1915, about a million Russian casualties. But what they have not worked out is how to achieve a political 
consequence from it. And of course, that's never easy. Uh, but I mean, it's a classic problem if you leave the military in charge of war, which is always a total mistake. Yeah, that's, uh, that's another point I want to come to in, uh, in a short while. Uh, what I wanted to ask is uh, how important to the eventual Allied victory was the British blockade? Um, I think it was very important, but the British themselves didn't think it would be as lead, as war-winning as till 1921-22. That was their estimation. Um, Germany was able to continue a certain amount of neutral trade, particularly through the Netherlands. Um, Germany, of course, gained resources for, by its campaigning in the East, first against Russia and then subsequently in addition against Romania, from which it derived significant amounts of grain and oil. Um, so the British blockade was important. I mean, it's a, it's a double blockade, obviously. It's a blockade against the German warships coming out. And that, I think, is highly significant. And, um, but it's also, as you say, a form of economic warfare. And that, again, is highly significant. Uh, but in a way, it was the sort of stab in the back excuse which Germans subsequently used, German sort of militarists subsequently used. You know, the army failed because not of its own inadequacies, but because civilian morale was wrecked due to, in the eyes of 1920s, 30s and 40s, German commentators, Bolshevik, socialists, Jews and the British blockade. Well, you know, all of those may or may not have taken a view. I think that, uh, quite frankly, this was a ridiculous account. Um, but the key thing was that the German army had run out of a war-winning strategy, um, so that although there was uh, growing um, discontent, I think it's fair to say, um, in, in Germany um, in 1918, it didn't make the political outcome inevitable. How important was the American factor in the eventual German defeat in 1918? Not only the 1.4 American uh, soldiers on the ground by the fall of 1918, but the psychological boost to the British and the French as well. Well, you're absolutely right. And on top of that, a psychological strain uh, for the Germans. Um, so... Um, I think, uh, you know, I think that's very, very important. I mean, as you may know, I wrote a book on the Great War and the making of the modern world. And, you know, it was very striking that contemporaries, including you know, just ordinary British troops, thought the Americans were going to make an enormous uh, difference. Uh, and the other point I would underline is it's not just... Um, on the ground, um, the American battleships play an important role in being added to the British fleet at Scarpa Flow in order to affect the naval balance in the North Sea and lessen any chance of a German naval breakout. And obviously, American destroyers and frigates play significant roles in um, uh, convoy protection and in anti-U-boat operations. And I think people are often inclined to underplay the significance of the German, sorry, of the American naval strength. But I think that was very, very important indeed. And again, to giving confidence. I mean, you know, the Germans had already had their confidence broken by the failure 
um, at Jutland to do more than you know relatively minor damage to the to the uh, British Grand Fleet. But nevertheless, the American addition meant that uh, you know it was highly unlikely that, to put it mildly, that any other German entry into the North Sea would be anything other than a suicide uh, dash. So no, I think the Americans are important. And the other point, I mean, which we haven't mentioned um, or I mentioned earlier, is American industrial capacity. I mean, America is the world's leading in, uh, industrial power. Um, its industry had been fundamentally important earlier in the war. That was one of the whole points about the war of the Battle of the Atlantic. I mean, it's not the only point, uh, but it's one of the major points of it. Um, and the ability of the British and the French to go on buying things are from the Americans. Munitions is very, very important. Um, in 1917 and 18, of course, the Americans, um, therefore, their industrial capacity is again, uh, you know, on the side against the Germans. So I think this is this, this is all highly significant and was understood as such by by the Germans. And I think that's. You know, that, I think, is the thing that I would really dwell on, that the sense that the war is moving against them um, is something that is very, very, very significant. And it's all sorts of respects. I mean, you know, we, you mentioned quite correctly the large numbers of American troops uh, convoyed across the Atlantic. What is striking is uh, that that showed the strategic irrelevance by then of the German uh, submarine threat. Um and, you know, the tonnage uh, being lost to per German submarine lost um, is falling. The allied, you know, the accumulated allied tonnage lost is, you know, is dropping. All of this is, is very significant. And as I said, it encourages the Germans to go for the German general staff, I should say, rather, to go for this, you know, high stakes uh, risk in early 19. So in your, to your mind, did uh, Ludendorff had any alternatives to the so-called Kaiserschlachter or spring offensives of 1918? And if he did have any alternatives, what were they? Well, again, I mean, that's very interesting and it's very counterfactual. I mean, going back to your earlier point when we were discussing Falkenheim, I mean, he could have sat tight. Um, he could have waited to be attacked and in the meantime brought forward more uh, the resources from the new conquests on the east and transferred more of the troops. So I think that's um, a point worth thinking about. Uh, they could have tried a, um, a, uh, a peace offensive and seen what it would have done and whether it might have, um, as it were in particular, whether they could have persuaded the Austrians to offer terms to the Italians that would have helped to detach them uh, from the war after Caporetto. Um, I mean, Ludendorff didn't have to do what he did in strategic terms. I mean, obviously, it's generally agreed in operational terms, as you know. Um, you know, it's generally agreed that he suffered from varying the axes of approach from the um, from a sort of lack of strategic reality. Um, from at some stage uh, trying to threaten Paris, at other stage trying to drive on the on the uh, Channel ports. I mean, I think that's fairly. Uh, clear-cut. And the other thing we know, um, uh, that the Germans were left by their offensives with an extended front. I mean, uh, whereas at the beginning of 1918 on the Western Front, it was 390 kilometers. By the summer of 1918, it's 510 kilometers, not 120. Much of it difficult to defend. And with about 
I think, 900,000 fewer men to defend it. I mean, that's, you know, pretty poor by any standard. Now, and at the same time, what it hasn't done is used shock to force an allied collapse. So in many senses, this is very similar. And of course, Ludendorff, uh, as we know, is an inspiration for Hitler. Um, in many senses, this is very similar to Hitler's idea in 1944, late 44, that he will use shock to force an allied collapse in the sense that uh, he will um, intimidate force uh, the Western allies to to um, to stop attacking, to stop fighting, to negotiate, um, and um, I don't think this was at all credible. I mean, it's part and parcel of a more extreme German war making in the second end, sorry, in the end of World War One. So you've got the move to unrestricted submarine warfare in 1917, even though they know that that will almost certainly bring the Americans in. Um, it's the large-scale bombing of London by Goethe bombers, uh, which the Germans believe will uh, influence British domestic opinion sufficient to persuade the British to get out of the war. Um, it's the attempt to knock Italy out at Caporetto. Um, there is a much more high-stakes uh, activity. So it's unlikely, to put it mildly, that avert they were going to go to negotiate. I mean, it is true that, you know, British governments like the French governments were under problems. I mean, the Germans had already seen Asquith go. Um, the, um, as far as the French were concerned, um, the, the socialists had launched a strong attack on Clemenceau in March uh, 1918. The so-called um was um, formally abandoned. Um, trade union officials were had been you know taking part in strikes there was there was tension um and in the spring of 1918 lloyd george's war leadership was challenged in parliament by asquith um but i don't think there was any mechanism by which um german battlefield success even if greater could have precipitated a change of government in either uh, Britain and France at that moment. Although, you know, we see what happens in France in 1940, so nobody should say never. Um, I mean, what's interesting in, in May 1918 in Paris is that it had been a large-scale strike, and it came to an end because trade union officials, fearing national defeat and revolution, moved back from the bricks. Now, the very fact that they feared it um, is itself very instructive. And of course, you could hear the distant guns of you know, the Germans in Paris. So the very fact that they feared it is instructive. Equally, the very fact that there wasn't a political collapse is also instructive. And that raises actually my um, next question, which is, um, is it not the case that the, the outcome of the war and the way the war evolved shows that... Uh, regardless of how one may pinpoint um, deficiencies, um, overall, allied full parliamentary governance, meaning in, in the case of uh, the Entente powers, uh, obviously only England, France, not uh, Tsarist Russia, uh, showed itself to work better in uh, the totality or total warfare than the pseudo or partially parliamentary governments in Vienna and Berlin, or for that matter well, in I, Petersburg. I would, agree. 
Yeah, I would agree with you. Uh, I mean, the other parliamentary place I would add is Italy. And what's interesting in Italy is despite the strain of 1917, which is very considerable, they kept going. I mean, you know, um, so I know I, I would I would agree with I would agree with you that, you know, they, they generated um, stronger ministries in the case of all three of those states. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, Clemenceau is uh, you know much stronger ministry than the uh, the one of uh, Paul Panlevy, who, who which it replaced. Um, so yeah, no, I don't, um, I don't, uh, I don't disagree, um, um, you know, a, a, at all with that. And um, what I would also say though is, of course, you know, we could easily have been debating it differently if there'd been a a, a different outcome. But yes, I think there is a terrible flaw in, and we've discussed this when we've spoken about World War II, there is a tremendous flaw in moving from tactical strength of German war making, the frequent though not invariable operational effectiveness, to, to strategic uh, um, assessment. And I don't think the Germans were good at that. I mean, as we know, they weren't terribly good at thinking through the consequences of trade, of commerce, the global thing, um, both in World War One and World War Two, the naval and land leaderships were very, very poorly integrated. I think that was a major problem for the Germans in both world wars. Um, but the other thing I'd like to say, which is really interesting, and I'm sure listeners will notice, is what we're not talking about are tanks and aircraft and new technology in that shape. And I think that's deliberate. Um, clearly, um, in particular tactical uh, situations, the British and French uh, benefited from having tanks, but that was not a war-winning tool. In fact, the large scale, as far as the Western Front is concerned, the combination of the large-scale availability of fresh and determined American units in 1918, plus the extent to which the British and the French, particularly the British, had mastered what's known as the three-dimensional battlefield, um, you know, accurate pinpoint uh, long-range artillery fire. Uh, these break through um, the uh, defences of the Hindenburg line and really are you know, very, very significant indeed. But you can discuss the war without having to focus on what is happening on the individual uh, battle lines. Uh, if you wanted people to take one thing away from this discussion, what would it be? That we shouldn't discuss World War One without strategy. That while it is fully understandable, and I try to do it in my book, to focus on the human cost and the terrible nature of the fighting, in the end of the day, a verdict was delivered, and that verdict can only be understood in terms of strategic choice and strategic uh, issues. Uh, upon that observation, which I agree with entirely, I would like to thank you very much, Professor Black, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks to listening to Arguing History, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Black. Thank you very much.